You're about to watch an amazing interview with George Farmer. He grew up evangelical. He went to Oxford. He converted to Catholicism. He ran a hedge fund. And then he met Candace Owens, the amazing American influencer. And having just met her 17 days later, he asked her to marry him. And she said, yes. Today, we talk about his fantastic, interesting life, his theology, his fascination and love for the traditional Latin mass, his knowing Andrew Tate before he was famous, all sorts of amazing topics. So here it is, my interview with George Farmer, who is one of the most interesting people I've ever met. Enjoy. George. Taylor. Thanks for joining us. Not at all. Thank you for having me. So you studied at Oxford, yep. but as a Protestant. Correct. And how far after that did you become a Catholic? So during my time at Oxford was when I converted to the Catholic faith. Um, having had a kind of long history of Protestantism, I decided that, you know, the Catholic Church, I, I, I think that if you read the Bible from beginning to end, you will end up a Catholic. That's kind of, that's, that's generally my opinion. And so I was very much of the opinion by the time I was kind of 18, 19, when I began at college, when I was halfway through college, I was very much of the opinion that the Catholic faith was the correct faith. You know, it was the faith of scripture. Yeah. And so I converted uh, halfway through my university career and uh, did RCIA, was confirmed by the Bishop of Oxford, took the name of Dominic as my confirmation name. And um, yeah, so that was, that was kind of my experience. That was yeah. my story. I really enjoyed watching your, it wasn't a debate, it was a dialogue yeah. on your wife's show, Candace Owens' show, where you debated Ali Stuckey. Correct. It was a, a multi-part series. And right out of the gate, you went after the solo scriptura, mm. which I think is when you're playing chess and you talk about opening moves and you're dealing with evangelicals and Protestants, that is always the best opening move. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that that debate was funny. I mean, you know, honestly, I, I Candice, Candice really wanted me to do it, and I was happy to do it. I was very nervous about the whole thing, you know, and I've I've never really, I haven't actually done an interview since I did that interview. Mm -hmm. um, so I was very nervous about the whole thing. I I feel that with the Protestant Church, it's very easy for a Protestant to stand up and defend what they perceive to be scripture because there's no authority you know it's 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 like oh well i you know i think this about baptism i think this about uh, the eucharist etc etc there's there's not much central authority with the catholic church when somebody stands up to be a catholic apologist like yourself or or in this case myself you're defending the doctrines and the dogma of holy mother church you know this is not something which is is kind of casual you know you're really actually standing up for centuries, millennia of, of doctrine and dogma. I was quite nervous about the whole thing. Um, but I also knew that I was standing on very solid ground and particularly when it came to solid scriptura, because she really had, I mean, I, in my opinion, she had not that many good points. Um, and I generally, I think that the argument of solid scripture is incredibly weak. It's one of the weakest Protestant arguments as a whole. It, it is. It's the coup de grace. I mean, if you get them to, I, I was a Protestant, right? Uh, 
being confronted with the fact how do you know which books are in the Bible? And you actually went after on that as yeah. well. Yeah, I did. Because she was, she kind of went after the apocryphal books and all that. Well, Jesus didn't quote them and the New Testament this and that. And you said, well, if you're going to hold that criteria, yeah. you're going to lose a lot of books from the Old Testament. Yeah. And as a Protestant, when you begin to hear these things, because it's always Bible, 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 Scripture, when that get not, gets knocked out from under your feet, that and you and sola fide, justification by faith alone, yeah. You have to become a Catholic, or at least explore Orthodoxy. Yeah. Did you explore Orthodoxy? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I was. I was interested in the in the Orthodox faith. Um, I was interested. I mean, I've, any faith which has been more mystical, I think, it, more mystically orientated than the Protestant Church. The Protestant Church, there's a there's a kind of meme which I which I think is quite funny, which is you know, sort of a picture of an Orthodox church, and it says, you know giant onion domes, you know, sort of <laughs> beautiful basilicas, you know, located in St. Petersburg. Right. The Roman Catholic Church, you know, wonderful uh, buildings, you know, cupolas, the, the cross, yeah. located in Rome, you know, the Protestant Church, uh, an old warehouse located between <laughs> buffalo bills yeah. and, you know, wild wings kind of thing. Right. And, and, that, and that meme is quite funny because yes. of the fact that it's just very true. Right. Um, when I was when I was discerning the Catholic faith, I obviously looked at orthodoxy as well, and I was quite interested in what the Orthodox Church had to say for itself. I I still came to the conclusion that the Catholic faith was the most it was not just the most reliable, but it was the it was true. You know, that's mm. really what it was. It was it was the truth. Um, and sola fides, I think, is something which is very very interesting for most Protestants because they don't know much about it. You know, they just think faith alone, that's it. There's no other arguments. Scripture alone, faith alone, that's it. There's nothing else to it. The Bible itself, of course, says nothing about those two. Um, yep. And uh, Actually, on the contrary. Exactly. Uh, right. and, and James, of course, says it is not by faith alone. And that's actually something that Ali and I talked about you know, during the interview. Um, the only time in Scripture it says faith alone is when it says it is not by faith alone, right? And so, of course, this was a, this was kind of a sticking point um, for me. And and as I said earlier, like if you, I think if you read scripture, you will end up with a Catholic interpretation. You know, how can you read John six? How can you read the scriptures and think this does not say, if you eat my body, you know, if you eat if you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, that is what is it, that is exactly what it is saying. You know, right. and it's such a it's such a clear point. You know, so. For me, that was a huge issue of yeah. contention. Yeah. It was interesting for me to, when I was watching that interview to watch your wife, Candace Owens. And even though she's not a professing Catholic, she did side with you, I think, throughout the interview. And the, I, the, she did say at some point that Mary was a hang-up. Yeah. Um, why do you think that's the hang-up for Candace or for most Protestants? Because for me, it certainly was, but I think each of us have our breakthrough moment. Sure. Yeah, with with Candace, I think, you know, I think she, I think she took a very balanced view during that interview. Um, I think she was very sort of measured on both sides. Um, I think with Mary, you know, the issue with Mary that a lot of Protestants have is they don't discern it in scripture. And mm. of course, if you're using Sola Scriptura and you come to scripture with the view of Sola Scriptura, you, you end up with a position that 
well, there's not much said about Mary, you know, in, in scripture. There is some, there are some things, of course, but there's not that much said mm-hmm. about Mary. Um, I think that for myself, obviously for yourself, when you converted as well, but, you know, for myself, I viewed Mary as a kind of supplement. And I think that's how a lot of Protestants view Mary. Um, Candice, I think, has, you know, she's on a, she's on a, she asked a lot of questions. She's on a path of discernment. I think that that is her own faith journey. Um, I have tried to be as supportive as I can in terms of uh, her own faith journey and also instructing her or at least, you know, helping explain the Catholic faith. Um, With Mary, particularly, I think that Mary has an incredibly important role in in the church and when you become a catholic you kind of begin to appreciate that more you know i don't think it's something that you appreciate right from the outset i think that when you become a catholic you you begin to appreciate that more yeah what is the we were talking earlier but what for you was the breakthrough on our lady mm. i think having been quite academic about my theology having been quite academic about um, sort of how I came to the Catholic Church, I think for me, that kind of centuries-old debate, what was Mary? Was Mary just simply the mother of Jesus, or was Mm -hmm. Mary the mother of God? And I think that definition of Mary as the mother of God was a huge breakthrough for me, you know, because I, I, I looked at her as if... I looked at her as somebody who was kind of a mother of Jesus Christ figure. And actually it took for me to realize that to divorce the mother of Jesus Christ from being the mother of God was heresy. It was, it was something which was diametrically wrong. Sacrilegious. Exactly. Yeah. And so for me saying Mary, the mother of God was a huge breakthrough for me. That was, that was a real change in my dynamic with our lady, with, with our mother. I get the sense it's hard for me to think about it back when I was a Protestant because it was so long ago, but I get the sense when I talk to Protestants now, they think of Our Lady more as like an incubator or a surrogate. Yeah. As opposed to, this is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the eternal Logos. He had to die on the cross for us, and to die, you must have a body. And to shed your blood, you must have blood. Our Lady contributed to that redemptive reality. She's not the Redeemer. She's not a goddess. But the facilitation of our human redemption so that Christ is a human with us and can represent us and redeem us and save us, she contributes to that. He derives his humanity from her. And then once you understand that, the Immaculate Conception that Our Lady must be pure follows. Yeah. I mean, I think it's something that, like when you talk to most Protestants about the Immaculate Conception, they they think of the Immaculate Conception as as still Jesus is immaculately conceived. Yeah, they think it's miraculous conception. Yeah, they think that, exactly. Uh, They also don't understand the fact that Our Lady was in turn conceived without sin. Yeah. Right, and so this is, this is something where when I became a Catholic, I was also very kind of bewildered by this fact, you know, by this fact that 
Our Lady was conceived without sin. She was always without sin. Um, and that was something that in, initially when you say to Protestants, the miraculous, the immaculate conception, they go, yep, I'm on board with that. You know, tick, right. tick the box. It's all good. No worries about that. And then actually after a while you realize that we're talking about two different they think virgin. Exactly. They think it's very different what we're talking about. Um, for me, realizing again, it comes back to theology. Like, what are we really talking about? You know, I think that if you sit down, you have to understand these doctrines. You have to understand these dogmas. You have to understand what we're actually talking about. What we're actually talking about is serious theology, serious academic theology, which has been discussed for centuries, for millennia. Our Lady is not some kind of passing thought for the church. She's somebody who has been at the center, at the forefront of everything that the church has done for millennia. Um, every single doctrine, every single piece of dogma which has come out about Our Lady has been thought about, conceived, uh, developed, codified for centuries. And so the Immaculate Conception, the way that Christ was conceived, um, not just the way that Christ was conceived, but the way that Christ actually took on flesh was incredibly... This, these are all crucial segments of Christology. These are all crucial parts of the fact that that God became man, was was man and was God, you know? And this is, again, this is something which I love talking about because for centuries, the Christological debates of the early church were incredibly important. Like what was Christ? What was, um, you know, what was the son of man? In effect, he was both man and God. And to say that he was God walking on earth means that Our Lady has to have a unique significance. She has to be the mother of God. And so that, that kind of, that significance was not lost on me when I became a Catholic. That, that significance was a really, really important part of what, what I sort of, you know, that, something I picked up on when I became a Catholic. Yeah. Her immaculate womb is the gateway. Correct. Is the, if you want to use a more scientific term, the portal by which God enters the space-time continuum. Yeah, correct. Did he just float down from heaven yeah. in a cloud. He entered in an embryonic form in the womb of a virgin. Yeah. And if that is true, then Mariology begins to bloom because yeah. she is unique. She's not just another faulted person. Yeah. And I think, of course, that this idea was explained Theotokos, Ever Virgin, all these dogmas come out of basically what you see in Matthew, Luke, and the prologue of John. Yeah. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. It might not say the word Mary there, but the entire reality of the hypostatic union through the Virgin Mary yeah. is there. It's in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene yeah. Creed. You know, you tell a Protestant, who is mentioned in the Creed? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, Mary. Yeah. She's there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. What about the devotion? I mean, I, I grew up in Texas. Everything, when you were around Catholics, especially Mexican Catholics, was Our Lady Guadalupe, which to me seems so unusual. Uh, in fact, I once met, I was working with a Mexican guy and he was said he had a tattoo of Our Lady Guadalupe. And I said, oh, you have Mary? He goes, no, 
Our Lady Guadalupe. I said, Our Lady Guadalupe is Mary. He goes, no, it's not. You don't know. You're not Catholic. And I'm like, come on, man. <laughs> right? This kind of shows, you know, in some, certain subcultures of Catholicism, sort of a, a misunderstanding about Mary. So I think just being raised in Texas and sort of Mary was very exotic. Yeah. Sort of strange. And I think I read my way into Mariology. And yeah. once I understood the dogmas, I wanted to know her. Yeah. Yeah, I think, again, it comes back to what I said earlier, which is like the mother of God. You know, I think yes. when, you, when you conceive of Mary, if you conceive of Mary as just another human being, mm. you know, I think that then it becomes difficult to praise her. You know, I think it becomes difficult to give glory to her and what she's done. I think if you conceive of Mary as the mother of God, it's a very different conversation. You know, I think it becomes a much more kind of laudable, praiseworthy name at that point. You know, and I think that her various apparitions throughout the ages have obviously testified to the fact that she is working through the ages. You know, she's working um, through the ages to bring people to her son. Mm-hmm. Um, and, if, and, and there are plenty of theologians who have said this in the past, so I'm not saying anything new, but you know, there are plenty of people who have said, who is closer to Christ than, than his own mother? You yeah. know, who, is, who is closer to Christ than somebody who literally conceived and bore him out as a son you know, and, and, and stood at the foot of the cross? So for me, kind of once I conceived of Mary as the mother of our Lord, you know, once I conceived of Mary as... Uh, somebody who who not just bore the the God child out in terms of physical birth, but also raised him, gave gave guidance to him, was his mother. You know, this is something where suddenly at the end of at the end of the day, you're looking at this person and you're thinking, this is this is the mother of God. This is literally the mother of God, yeah. um, and that becomes a totally different conversation to the Protestant church where you just think of Mary, as I said, you know, like a kind of an added supplement, you know, this is somebody who's, who's uh, useful, but not necessary. You know what I mean? You know, Mary is dispensable in the Protestant church. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I'm always doing is pray your rosary every single day. Yeah. And people in my audience who aren't Catholic or maybe aren't as familiar with Mariology, there's the misunderstanding that our lady competes with Jesus. Mm. This is the biggest misunderstanding from Protestants. Yeah, that's a good they one. think of it as a pie or a pizza, you know, and there's eight slices of apple pie and they're all for Jesus. He, he gets all the glory, all the worship, which is true, right? And they say, well, if you're having devotion or you say a Hail Mary or a rosary, you're taking one or two slices out of this apple pie and giving them to Mary. And now poor Jesus only has six slices. Yeah. And then you take a slice and give it to a saint and a pope and priesthood. And now Jesus has one little sliver of pie left for him. And that's how they see Christianity as a zero-sum game. But yeah. Our Lady says in Luke, my soul magnifies the Lord. She's literally yeah. a magnifying glass. And as a married man, I'm sure you can attest to with Candace, when you get married and love a woman... Yeah. And then you conceive a child. It's never the understanding. You would never say to Candace, well, now that there's a baby here, I'm going to love you 50% and the baby 50%. And then another baby comes. 
you're 33%, baby one is 33%. And as you have more children, I mean, I have eight kids, like that means I'm loving my wife less and less every time a baby's conceived. Yeah. That is not the way that normal human beings think about family, relationships, or love. Correct. The fact is, when Candace has a baby, congratulations on your third, by Thank the way. You. you love her more. Yeah. When when you come to know the mother of Jesus, you love Jesus more. Yeah. She's not subtracting, she's multiplying. And if Protestants can understand that, then they begin to understand the sacraments. Because it's not that Jesus isn't enough, so baptism has to somehow fill in for Jesus, or purgatory has to somehow add in what Jesus couldn't accomplish. All of these things are participating in the reality of Christ. Correct. And that that's it. Yeah. If you get to that, if you can get away from that zero sum understanding, everything is now, in a way, it's kind of platonic, right? There's a yeah. participation in a higher reality, and that higher reality is Christ. Yeah. I think that's a really good way of putting it. I mean, there's so much of our world which views kind of reality as subtraction or addition, you know, like you're going to add to something or you're going to take away from something. Um, and in my view, it's like, no, the whole pie gets bigger. You know, this is exactly. the beauty of it. Like this is the beauty of the pie. The pie gets bigger. Um, and, and that's kind of where I am, particularly with my faith is that I very much view the world as kind of getting bigger, you know, that, that when I think you begin to understand Christ, when I think you begin to understand our Lord, you know, you kind of take on this view of God as somebody who's no longer confined by the physical realities of the church. You know, it's not just a building. It's actually more than that. It's not just um, you know, the sacraments. It's more than that. He, he becomes part of your soul. You know, and actually at that point, you be you become a bigger person. You know, you become yes. a more loving person. Your soul grows as Christ fills you. Um, and I think that that's kind of, that's how I view Our Lady. That's how I view the saints as well. You know, all of these things are beautiful additions. They're not taking away from one big pie. They're actually adding to that pie. They're actually making that pie even bigger. You know, you, you can draw on the intellectual history of the saints, you can draw on Our Lady, you can draw on, you know, whether it be like the early church, the, the fathers of the church, whether it be 20th century theology, theology or philosophy, you know, you can draw on all these different things and you can make that pie bigger. And that's, that's, your, corpus of, that's your corpus of doctrine. That's what you draw from. That's what you become more you know, enamored with as you become a Christian, as you become more of a Christian mm -hmm. over time. And that was certainly the case for me. Yeah. yeah. Every saint is a new manifestation of the mercy and grace of Christ. Correct. In a sinful world. Correct. Absolutely right. So it's, it's, a, it's a multiplier and not a subtraction. Correct. It's a force multiplier. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and the Protestant idea is that Christ will lose something yeah. by a multiplier. Yeah. Which just, it can't be the case. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that was, again, that was something where I was very conscious of it. You know, like, if you, if you, if you talk to the saints, you know, you're going to be taken away from Christ. You know, that was something right. that I was very aware of um, because that was how I was taught. You right. know, like, if you, if you pray to a saint, you know, why are you praying to a saint? You shouldn't be doing that. You should be praying to Christ because all you need is Christ. 
And of course, this was something that came up with, with Ali as well, which was like, well, okay, why do we ask people to pray for us at all then? Yeah. You know, and, and I think that's a very relevant point because are you actually, are you taking, do you perceive of Christ as limited in his own functionality? If you perceive of Christ as limited in his own functionality, you'll of course believe that by praying to a saint, you're removing from Christ or you're right. like, you're taking away from Christ. If you perceive of Christ as unlimited, you know, unlimited, unconstrained by time, by space, by the universe, then you know that nothing you can do will ever take away from him. Um, and actually by praying to a saint, you're saying, you know, one of my most frequent prayers is Saint Jose Maria, Saint John, Saint Joseph, carry these prayers to the feet of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because you yes. can intercede for me. You know, these are, these are deep spiritual truths, mm -hmm. which are, which are not often explained, mm -hmm. um, but they're really, really important. Yeah. And that's kind of, that's, that's, that's my prayer. Yeah, and you see that in the book of Revelation, in the apocalypse, there's the 24 elders, 24 presbyters, and they're around the, th the altar of God, the Lamb of God is on the altar. And these 24 humans who are in heaven, yep. who most commentators say represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles or the plentitude of the Old and the New Testament. So there's 24 humans. They are offering bowls of incense to God. And it says that the incense is the prayers of the people on earth. Yeah. So already in the apocalypse, first century, yeah. an infallible vision, the flow is people on earth are praying. They are human agents. We call them saints in heaven, presenting bowls of incense to the Lamb, Jesus Christ, who is the sacrificial victim and priest on our behalf to God the Father. Which brings us to the Latin Mass. Ah, You love the Latin Mass. I do. Uh, you're very involved in Latin Mass circles, promotion of it. You grew up evangelical, Church of England. How do you make that progression to understanding the history of the Roman Rite, the traditional Latin Mass, I mean, you are you are really speaking my language right now. Um, <laughs> well, you want to continue in Latin? We could do the rest. <laughs> we could conduct the rest of your Oxford guy, so we could just go Latin. Uh, no, look, I mean, let's do it. Let's do it. No, I'm joking. Um, no, as in, yeah. Look, I, I, it's actually not something that's very well known about me, which is that. So Michael Knowles and myself, who. Have you know, Michael is one of my closest friends. Yes. Um, and He's a genius. He is a great guy. He and I hang out the whole time. Um, and, you know, we, we talk absolute nonsense. We also talk very deep doctrine. We talk everything from the early church all the way through to modernist philosophy. Um, and he has nicknamed me, which I think is entertaining. And I have various nicknames for him, but he has nicknamed me the, uh, the trad Catholic king of Nashville. Right? Oh, um, Oof. Which I, which I, which is probably the only sort of moniker that I actually take yes. on any, as, as with any seriousness. So the Latin Mass for me is something that there's 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 various theological reasons that I think it's really important. There's also various um, sort of liturgical reasons that I think it's really important. The theological reasons that I think it's important is because. First of all, we're talking about something from the early church. This is not something that just came about as an aberration in sort of the fifth century. This is something that was very early. Uh, the church took it very seriously. 
And it's also, it's the church pre-Babel. It's the church pre- I love that. You know, pre, pre the Tower of Babel. And so for me, that is very important. It's a universal language, you know, and, and I, this is not just, again, this is not just kind of an academic pursuit. This is something that I take very seriously. I've been, I've been, I've traveled all over the world. I've, you know, I've visited, I don't know how many countries in the world, but I visited a lot of countries in the world. And, and normally when I go to a, a foreign place, one of the first things I do is look up the Latin mass yes. because it's something that I know that I can get wherever I am. You know, if I'm in Hungary or if I'm in Hong Kong, it's, it's something that I know that if I look up, I can walk into it. I can feel very familiar with it. It is the church without the vernacular. And that, that, and that sounds ridiculous. Like mm. that, why would you want the church without the vernacular? Right. And actually, the, the point being is that because it is the universal church, mm-hmm. like that's actually the truth of it. The church, the church in one language is the universal church. That is true Catholicity. That is true Catholicism. Catholicism means universality. Yes. Like that is what we're really aspiring to. Um, and so for me, the Latin Mass is a, is a, it's kind of the emblem of that Catholicism. It is the the flag bearer for that yeah. Catholicism. Secondarily, I think that it is something which is incredibly beautiful. And that was also something, again, my background, my conversion. I came from a church which, using that illustration from earlier, you know, kind of like the Protestant church between, you know, sort of Applebee's and, and Buffalo Wild Wings. You know, it, it, I, I had no liturgy. I had nothing to aspire to. I had no beauty. I had no, you know, kind of adoration. I had no sacramental theology. For me, I came into the Catholic Church. I was enamored with the liturgy. I was enamored with the contemplative orders, the monastics, all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, I was enamored with, with, with something that took Christ beyond my basic comprehension. I actually think that the Latin Mass gives glory to God in a way which is a little bit beyond human comprehension. And that for me is incredibly important because God is beyond our comprehension. Like God is not supposed to be understood. Like if you think you can understand God, you're completely wrong. You know, he's, he's actually beyond our comprehension. He's the mystery of the Trinity. He is the mystery of God made man. The Latin Mass gives glory to that. And that's what I love about the Latin Mass. The Latin Mass is beautiful. It is adoration in its highest form. It is sacramental theology in its highest form. It is universality in its highest form. And as Pope Benedict XVI said, you know, what has been considered perfect for many ages cannot, I'm paraphrasing here, but what has been considered for perfect for many ages cannot be considered now to be incorrect. You know, yes. and, that, and that for me, when I became a Catholic, was a very... So it was, it was, it was the gong, you know, it was the bell, which was rung. And, um, and so for me, that is the Latin mass. That is the beauty that I appreciate in the Latin mass. To me, the Latin mass shouts at me. This is not your performance. Mm. This is not you. I am being drawn into the eternal sacrifice of the Lamb of God to the Father. Yeah. And I come, I am welcomed as an outsider, and I'm brought into this mystical reality, but I am very much there 
not as a, I don't know, I have to be very careful about the language here because there's all idea of active participation, but my active participation in the mass is not me being a functionary. Yeah. Right? My active participation in the mass is interior. Yeah. And it, it, Protestant worship, and in some senses, the Novus Ordo worship, you can forget, you can begin to believe that I am here doing something for God. Mm. When you're at the Latin Mass, there is something foreign, something elevated, something transcendent that constantly reminds you, and as a father of eight kids, I think teaches your children that you are here primarily to be interiorly attached to the mystical offering of Jesus to the Father. Yeah. And that strips away things that are cheesy, things yeah. that are cringe. And I think it strips away from us any hint of Pelagianism that we have. Yeah. That we are here, I have this bundle of prayer and worship that I am going to rocket launch to the Father. No it's going to have to go through this mystical action at the altar th through him, with him, in him, in Jesus Christ. And in that sense, it is humbling. Yeah. And I can see in a modern world, especially in the sixties with all the optimism and it's, mm -hmm. and we could say pride that somehow that wasn't good enough. We had to tinker with it. Yeah. And the Latin mass brings us back to this and the Eastern rites as well. The yeah. Byzantine rites. Same thing. You you come there as a foreigner and then you're brought into the table. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really, I mean, that, that certainly for me, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to think of myself as uh, giving, I, I want to think of myself as an active participant, mm -hmm. but as Pope Pius X said, the mass is the most holy form of prayer. Yes. You know, and that's really how I think of it. There are great sections of the Latin Mass where you're not expected to, where the laity is not expected to say anything. Yes. You know, we sit, we 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 kneel, right, and we watch, and we watch the priest consecrating the host. We watch the priest consecrating this offering to God, as part of God, making manifest what God has made manifest to us. Yes, and that is incredibly beautiful. And during that time, I. You know, I, I know the Latin. I also know the English. You know, I pray in my own mind, Lord, make this manifest to me. Yes. Lord, make this manifest so that I understand what you are doing for me right now. You know, Lord, bring this to, re to a reality for myself. You know, that, for me, that's very important. You know, that, that is making it manifest for myself. That is making it real in my life. You know, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't become an academic subject. It doesn't become a liturgical conversation. It becomes, it becomes a reality. Um, and so that's kind of uh, not to criticize the novice order because I think the novice order has many good things about it. And, you know, I'm, I'm supportive of the novice order. I think it's very important, but it, it, it makes the Latin mass makes everything that we're doing sacrosanct. It makes it real kind of sacramental theology made manifest. That is really what it is for me, you know, and that's kind of why it's so important. That's why I love it. That's why I go, I try and go as often as I can. Um, you know, it's very, very important mm -hmm. for me. 
What's your perspective on the proliferation of the Latin Mass? You know, 10 years ago, a lot has changed in the past 10 years. Yeah. Uh, it has become more socially acceptable. I would even say it's even become cool to attend the traditional Latin Mass. Whereas, say, 10 years ago, I would be told by Catholics, don't mention that you go to the Latin Mass. It's controversial. Yeah. Now, that is that has changed. And we're seeing... And, and you're very involved in this work globally the movement catching fire and this is in africa yeah asia it's not just in america and france anymore yeah 100 what's your perspective on that yeah and i think that's it that's it i mean i'm very excited when you when you say things like that because it makes me very happy but um yeah look I, as a convert as somebody who came to the catholic church from you know kind of very low church evangelical background i i i'm very excited by the movement into the latin mass i think it's very very important i think it's something that um we as catholics have to encourage and i, I i'm very much of the opinion that as the world loses its appreciation of the sacred it's going to move to things which are increasingly sacred. And that's kind of where I am with Latin Mass. You know, I think that the world has begun to appreciate the Latin Mass more and more as we've degraded our culture, as we've become, you know, kind of more and more culturally um, degenerate in many ways. Yeah. Like, you know, and I've, I've made this point before that you know, wind the clock back kind of 1500 years, you had debates in the market of constantinople about the nature of christ and right. wind the clock forward 1500 years and you have cardi b and lizzo you know kind yes. of these these are the sort of two illustrations like we're supposed to be getting smarter we are technologically definitely smarter but we're also culturally much less smarter we're much less sophisticated now than we were i think that the human soul requires something as beautiful and as sacrosanct as the latin mass and this is something that our our kind of our society the converts, uh, the church as a whole is growing towards because they appreciate the beauty of something as sacred as the Latin Mass. And this is something that I'm very passionate about and very involved with and, and obviously want to grow and, and help and help flourish. You know, I, I, it's, if I get to the end of my days and I sort of look back on my life and I think Christ, or, Christ calls us to be bold soldiers for him. You know, what, what did you do for me? Will I be ashamed of you? You know, when you when you reach the gates of heaven, will Christ be ashamed of you? I hope that I can, not in defense of myself, because I'm saved by grace, saved by works, saved by what he's done. But I definitely hope that when I get to the gates of heaven, I can say I actively promoted, you know, sort of, I gave glory to you by helping bring others to the faith yes. through this liturgical celebration of your body, mm -hmm. your your death on the cross. That That is something that I can earnestly bring to him. Take my life. Take my life as a fragrant sacrifice for you. But let me give glory to you through bringing other people yes. to the Latin Mass. Yes. This podcast is brought to you by the new St. Thomas Institute. How often are you challenged by friends and coworkers about your faith and you feel insecure? You don't feel confident because you don't have the answers either at hand or in your mind. Well, to help you with that, 10 years ago, I founded the New St. Thomas Institute, and we have online courses in an online institute with thousands of people studying theology and philosophy together. We have over 10 certificates that you can earn. You can earn your certificate in Catholic philosophy, theology, church history, church fathers, medieval theology, Old Testament, 
New Testament, even liturgy. To learn more, go to nsti.com and sign up as a student. I will be your personal professor to guide you through these difficult and complicated problems, questions, objections, and make it very easy for you so that you can be confident in your faith. Go to New St. Thomas Institute at nsti.com. It's a very good point you make about how the world becomes less sacred and so that we are going to have to seek those sacred places. And, you know, this raises all these questions of communion on the hand versus communion on the tongue, vernacular versus sacred languages or sacral languages is the better term. Um, Vestments, music, chant, architecture. Yeah preaching, all of these things, it's almost like in the 1960s, we said, let's try it to be a little bit more relevant. And if you look at the numbers and the demographics, it didn't Didn't work work out. out. And as the world got more and more secular, it sort of in a way dragged down that project. Yeah. And now there's this renewal and it's all over the world. Yeah. And it's, it's viral, you could say, because of the internet. Yeah. Where, especially during COVID, you had people, they started live streaming masses and they watched one mass. I don't like this. They live stream. Oh, this is a Latin mass. They may have never seen a Latin mass in their entire life, but they live stream one during COVID. This is amazing. And there, I've heard thousands of people live stream a Latin mass. And then when COVID was over, they went and found one. Yeah. yeah. This is it. It's a great moment. Yeah. Go give. God works in mysterious ways, as one just before, you know, and we can never predict how it's going to happen. Um, yeah, I mean, your point about, like, you, you mentioned the word chant, and I think that's really mm-hmm. interesting because I, I wouldn't say I came to the church through chant, but it was definitely something that was very present for me. You know, like, chant was a huge part of my, of, of my conversion experience. Like, I loved chant. Um, I loved the vestments. I loved everything about it. Like, and I, this is again, something where I think the Protestant church really, it, it hasn't got this right, you know, and I, and I, and I've said this before, which is that, um, like when you become a protest, all revolutions in history, you know, most revolutions in history want to change the existing world order, right? That's kind of the French revolution. It's, you know, the sexual revolution, it's whatever you want to call it, whichever revolution you want to take in history, most of them want to change what was before. They see a problem, they identify the problem, and they overthrow it. The Protestant revolution was exactly the same. It identified what it perceived to be corruption in the church and said, we're going to change this. We want to overthrow the corruption in the church and we want to change it for the better. The trouble with most revolutions which become successful is that they have no system of governance to exist beyond the initial revolution. That was exactly what happened with Protestantism. Protestantism overthrew the system which was before in the form of the Catholic Church, but then it was forced to become its own doctrine and dogma and, and theology afterwards. And really it didn't have any place doing that. It never actually, you know, Luther never expected to become its to become a church within himself right he he expected to reform the catholic church he was a catholic he had many sort of negative opinions about what had actually happened during the protestant reformation towards the end of his life this is a little known fact yes. he actually had sort of grave 
concerns about what had happened to the the Protestant church as it was then by the end of his life. Um, in my opinion, you know, you kind of look at you look at something like the Latin Mass, and the Latin Mass is this throwback. It is it, it is a it is the church at the beginning of time. You know, it is it is the church at the dawn of time. Liturgy, chant, all these things bring us back to the early church. It is it is exactly what we require in this modern age to get that continuity with the early church, and that for me is very very important. It's something that I, I think is, as I said, lost in this modern age. I think it's, it's something where we've completely lost our affiliation with anything sacred, with anything early in the, as an early church. I think we've lost any affiliation with that. We've got bishops, priests um, who are, you know, kind of 1960s, 1950s, 1950s, 60s onwards, who who think that by updating the vernacular updating the liturgy we're going to bring more people into the church and actually that's not what the church is about you know christ christ is not about trying to be accepting to all people this is a popular misconception he's actually he says himself people will hate you yes people will despise you people will think you're evil you're wicked wars will be waged in my name Mm -hmm. you know this is this is the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is that it's it's divisive. It's it's a revolution. It is a revolutionary language that Christ yes. Chesterton himself writes this. He's like, this is a revolutionary language. You know, it's a revolutionary language where we will bring freedom to the captive and liberation to the slave, but not in the way that you think it will be brought. This is not about a human revolution. This is about an eternal revolution where you're freed from sin. Yes. Um, and that's actually what kind of the old church got so right, yes. and um, which was the Church of the Martyrs. It was, yeah. And we've and we've and we've somehow sort of, you know, we've we've adapted that. We've tried to make it more popular, and I I don't think that's the right that's the right angle personally. Yeah. Speaking of sort of a perceived weakness in Catholicism and in Christianity. Uh, you and Candace went to Romania with Andrew Tate. Candace interviewed Andrew Tate. And Andrew Tate has become a global sensation because he's perceived as hyper-focused on what it means to be a man, masculinity. He's famously converted to Islam in the past year. Yeah. He's very vocal about that. You've known Andrew Tate for a number of years. You were just with him for that interview, which is some controversial in some circles. Why is it that Andrew Tate has captured so much attention? What void was there that he stepped into? Yeah, <laughs> that's a great question. And, and yeah, yeah, it, yeah. I, I've known Andrew for many, many years. Um, I've known Andrew since before Andrew was Andrew, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Um, I've known Andrew since before he was famous, I guess. Andrew is a, is a great guy. Um, he really is, and he's a, he's a wonderful guy in many ways. Um, like all humans, he's flawed, mm-hmm. and I think, I actually think that he would probably be the, off camera, I think he would be the first person to admit that. Like, he's, he's a flawed human being. Um, in terms of what he's captured, like how he is sort of 
taken on the male persona. I think our world is, is starved of masculinity. I think it's starved of real male icons. Um, I think it's starved of men, I don't want to say going to war, but I kind of think like m men being men, right? right. You know, we, we, we used to have a society where men could define themselves by being men, mm -hmm. you know, by expressing aggression, by expressing anger, but at the same time also expressing protection. Like we would protect right. our women, you know, we would protect our society, yeah, our family, our church. Exactly. You know, and, and this is something which is really important. I think nowadays we're told that men are uh, a problem. You know, we're told that men are a weakness, um, that men, and, and look, as a, as a sex, we definitely have our problems. There's no doubt about mm -hmm. it. We, we, you know, the number of men who have brought down their own careers by thinking with their, you know, thinking with their genitalia is off the charts. I mean, it kind of amazes me that we always, you know, like, you look at half these incredibly successful men and half, half of them have been divorced three times and they've got like 12 kids from different women. Yes. And, you know, all these kind of problems and issues. Um, and we, we, we definitely have our own set of concerns, but at the same time, men are a wonderful sex. Like we are, we are literally 50% of God's creation. You know, we yeah. are supposed to be the protectors. We're supposed to be the family. Um, you know, the, the kind of the originator, the originator of the family, we're supposed to be the guardians. Somebody like Andrew steps into the void created by um, the modern narrative of like weak men mm -hmm. and counters that and says, actually, you know what? I'm going to be this guy. I'm going to be the guy who tells you that being a pathetic stay at home video game playing Right. you know kind of pornography porn watch yeah porn addicted like all this kind of stuff that is a bad thing right and you should step up and i i, I read andrew's stuff quite frequently you know I'm, not because i think it's necessarily relevant to what i'm i i don't i don't build my own image off what andrew says because i know andrew pretty well and like you know I, as i said i i know that he's full of flaws and and i think he would admit that himself but i read it because i'm interested in what he's saying to the rest of the world and what he's saying to the rest of the world is, get up, you are lazy, you want to become as successful as me. He came from nothing, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? The guy came from absolutely nothing. He came from a town in England, which is famous for an airport. <laughs> That's kind of all it, like mm -hmm. Luton is not famous for anything else. It's, it's, it's kind of a dump, yeah. you know? And, and he became a chess champion and a kickboxing champion. Um, and you know, I disagree with him fundamentally on theology. You know, yes. he and I have talked about this before and, and, um, like I, I would, I, I'm sure that I will have many conversations in my life with Andrew about theology, but you know, he and I fundamentally disagree about the way to God and the path to God, but he's still telling men, get up, correct your life, make a living, earn your wage and actually pay your way in society. Yeah. And that is a good thing for the world. And, 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 I, and, I, and I agree with that. You know, I, I think that you should pay your way in the world. I think that you should earn a living. You should, you should become a strong man. You know? Now, I think that there's areas that he like, hasn't got nailed down. For example, he hasn't got down the family component. You know, he's, he's still, he's got different ideas to me about that. And I think that my ideas come from God. His ideas come from Allah. Um, probably 
you know, diff very different worlds, di very different conceptions. But I, but I think that fundamentally he's got a lot of good points, and uh, and so I respect him and encourage him in what yeah. he's doing. One of my concerns about Andrew Tate is, just as we are discussing sort of this renewal in Catholicism to being authentically Catholic, apostolic, ancient, orthodox, creedal, and so much of that is is turning towards what we call traditional Catholicism and. It's, it's sort of the, the flag of that as the traditional Latin Mass or the Eastern Rites as a correction. I can see young men who perhaps did not have fathers or had difficulties in their youth in a way leapfrogging over Christianity and going all the way to Islam. Yeah. And Andrew Tate sort of being an icon of that that jump. And one of the things that Andrew Tate said about converting to, I did a video on his conversion to Islam. And, and one of the things that that's alarming is he says, he thought to himself, which God would protect me and my family? Yeah. The God of the Christians or Allah? And he concluded Allah, because yeah. when you look to the West where Christian Christianity held sway, it's tolerant mm. of not just mistakes, it's tolerant of grave evil yeah. to the extent of the destruction of the family, the destruction of society. When I hear him say that, again, he may not be theologically deep, but saying things like that is very powerful, yeah. in particular to young men. Do you think he will have a theological influence? Yeah, I, I, I do. And I mean, this is something that, again, like I would... Um challenge him on and this is probably our you know one of our biggest areas of disagreements would be that i think he's drawn to and i'm speaking for him here and i i don't want to i don't like telling other people what other people think because i would like to let them speak for themselves you know and i, I just want to comment on what they've said for themselves but i think that if I had to put words in his mouth, he would say that he's drawn to Islam because of its strength and because of its. So, in some ways, it's a militant religion, you know, yes. and and it's it's a strongman religion. Um, the church has lost its sword. The church has lost its its battle power. Yes, you know, and that and that really perturbs me. Mm -hmm. Like you know, as a Christian, as a as an incredibly str devout, strong Christian who, for whom the faith is everything. You know, I'm like, I can throw away politics, I can throw away the media, I can throw away everything else if you leave me with Christ. And, and if you leave me with Christ, I will draw the sword for him and I will go and fight. Yes. You know, and, and we need to be that church again. We need to be the church which will draw the sword, which will go out and fight for Christianity. Mm -hmm. And Christianity... It's like people say God is love, you know, and, 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 and yes, God is love, but God is also justice. God yes. is wrath. Yes. Like, do you believe in hell? Do you believe in evil? Like, do you believe in the theological concepts of evil and hell? Yes. Do you believe? Retribution. Yeah, retribution, righteousness. Like Jesus didn't just walk into the temple and say, right. you know what, pug. you're all good. Yeah. You know, he, he, threw the, he threw the tables. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he was an... He was angry because he realized that these men were 
making unsacred what was sacred. And that is what we should do as Christians. We should be, this church is sacred. These people are sacred. These, this, this truth is sacred. And, and, and Andrew talks about this when he says that, you know, you can insult Christianity, you can insult Jesus Christ in the West and nobody will care. Whereas you can, you, you insult Muhammad and, you know, um, your life uh, is forfeit. Yeah, well, and, and a guy will walk into the offices of Charlie Hebdo in Paris and machine gun people, right? And that's exactly what happens. I, obviously, obviously, I'm not saying anything like that. Right. But what I'm saying is that we should become more definitive about our defense of Christianity. We should become more authoritative about saying Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And actually, he is not just, he's not a prophet. He's not some great guy in history who was a theological teacher or a cultural teacher or a moral teacher. He was the son of God. Yes. And that is incredibly important. And we should defend that at every chance we get. Yes. And to return to the apocalypse, if you read the book of Revelation, Christ is a warrior of wrath. Yeah. He, he's on fire quite literally in the opening chapter of the apocalypse. He's, he's reaching out with his sickle and his he's sending angels to carry plagues and wrath and to to fight the sinner and you read that and and of course the old testament as well you know we have to get away from this marcionite idea that the god of the old testament is somehow not the god of the new testament it runs from genesis all the way to the apocalypse yeah but the the difficult thing for young men and even for us is they hear a message in their local parish. Isn't it a great thing that we got away from all of that? Now yeah. we're enlightened. Now we're moving more and more towards, I don't know what you would call it, a, a soft Catholicism. Mm. And, and, and that's my concern is unless we can get young men and women engaged in this authentic Catholicism, which of course is based in mercy and love, but also, you know, rigid is now a bad word. You know, you know, in the Catholic Church, rigid is like the F word now. It's such a bad word, rigid. But if you're not rigid, you're flimsy. Mm. There, there has to, something has to stand up straight. Yeah. There has to be some strength to it. Otherwise, secularism and or Islam will destroy us. Yeah. Which is more dangerous for us right now, secularism or Islam? Um, probably secularism, I would say, mm -hmm. right now. Um, and that's not because I, you know, in many in many ways, like Islam is is the enemy, or Islam is an enemy which we can see mm -hmm. and we can understand and we we can perceive. Mm -hmm. Secularism is is the creep, you mm -hmm. know, and that's it's like the death by a thousand cuts, and um, you don't notice it until you've had cut kind of 983 and then suddenly right. you're like wait hang on a sec we're we're, we're being killed here yes. you know? and this is and this is the point materialism secularism you know the advance of militant secularism in the west is really really dangerous if you'd asked me 12 years ago what i thought was the greatest threat facing the west i would have definitely said islam um now my answer has probably definitely changed you know i would say that secularism is far more dangerous people are drawn to islam because of its as I said earlier, because of its perceived strength, because of what, you know, like, you know, Andrew is a great example of that. Like somebody who, 
you know, has perceived the strength of Islam, been drawn to it. Um, it's a strong man's religion in many ways. Um, and, and that's why it appeals to a lot of young men. You know, if you look at most of the suicide bombers in the West these days, they don't come from, you know, Somalia. They're coming from, they're coming from Scranton. They're coming from, you know, Pennsylvania. They're coming yeah. from parts of the UK who Rotherham, you know, the, these, these are suicide bombers who are homegrown. Yes. Um, they're converts. Yes. We, we have to combat that in our theology. The church has to combat that in its theology. But what's at the same time as, you know, and this is kind of a, in some ways a flippant example, because you could say, okay, well, what's causing more damage? Obviously the taking of life is causing enormous damage when there is an attack from militant Islam. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, what's actually causing a huge amounts of damage is the advance of the secularist agenda. The secularist agenda is telling people that they don't need faith. They need nothing outside of, you know, whether they're shopping at Walmart or Primark right. or Ikea or whatever. They are actually, they are being completely stripped of all their spiritual existence through secularism. Secularism is stripping away yes. everything that makes human beings as a race sacred. Yeah. We're, we're, we're giving to the world, we're giving to material possessions, everything which makes us mm -hmm. different as human beings. Thank you for watching this interview so far with George Farmer. I hope you're enjoying it. Please give it a like, a thumbs up. Please subscribe and hit the bell. And please share it on Facebook and Twitter. There is a part two. So you want to keep watching. We continue to talk about Andrew Tate, his, and then really important, how he met Candace Owens in 17 days, asked her to marry him. It's an amazing story. We also go on to talk about the influencer space and the rise of religiosity in Daily Wire and Jordan Peterson and all kinds of amazing things and also get really personal on what it means to take the red pill, the black pill, and the white pill. Hint, the white pill is Christ. So click here to watch part two of this excellent interview with George Farmer.